billions and billions of years of history, the endurance of this planet through ages and ages of natural changes that it has rolled with for eons, and we are taking it down in a matter of decades. Stop getting your information from politicians, preachers, and propagandists. There is a wealth of information out there from credible scientific sources that will answer any and all questions you have on this subject, and not one of them will ever point a finger in the direction of a deity. And I love how evangelicals like to try and make us believe that there is dissent among the ranks with this, that there's yeah. disagreement. Well, no, there is not. If your God is in control, that means he has control over all of this. When do you start calling your God out on his lies and demand that he make good on his promise to prosper you and not to harm you? If this is a subject that worries you, and it should be, there are things you can do about it. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get unbound. The earth would survive our folly. Life would survive our folly. Only we think it wouldn't. That line from the novelization of Jurassic Park tainted my thinking on this subject for years as an evangelical because, like so many others, I had the sources I clung to for information and I never questioned their motives or the accuracy of their messaging. That was on me, but that was also the environment that we were in at the time. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we are tackling the subject of climate change, and we are doing it from the perspective of counter-apologetics and knowing how to respond to evangelicals and those who think like them about this subject. And yes, it's quite likely that this planet would be able to survive anything that we throw at it. That much is true. But there's one huge problem with that equation that we will address later on. Right now, virtual worship, hold the virtue... Let's just talk about the Bible, and no one promised me a rose garden either. It's Christians Behaving Badly, Displaced Logic Edition. <laughs> Shell, what have you got for us this week? Well, my first story today is hard to categorize. A Denver megachurch is closing its doors due to the pandemic. The Potter's House, a 32-acre megachurch headed by Pastor Torre Roberts, says they are closing their doors soon because of lack of interest and declining revenue. This from a church with over 500,000 YouTube subscribers to their channel and 600,000 in their, quote, social family, whatever that is. Well, it's just the number of people that follow them on social media, evidently. Yeah. Here's a quote from the pastor. COVID-19 forced every church in America to rethink how to best serve their parishioners and the broader community, Roberts said. Due to the inability to gather and the economic instability of the pandemic, our church, like many other churches in the nation, experienced declining donations. Instead of trying to do upkeep on an old building that needed significant repairs, he said, Potter's House decided to remain fully virtual. We decided that the best way forward would be to sell the property, continue our online offering that had proven a successful alternative, and maintain our hands-on community outreach operations, which includes our food bank that feeds thousands of families per year, Robert said. While the phrase inability to gather seems to be putting the blame on the government, the telling part 
is that donations are on the decline. Mm -hmm. The most devoted and active givers of the church didn't care to send their donations in at the same rate as before the pandemic. Of course not. You know why? You know, when I sat there in that pew Uh and that plate passed in front of me, you know how embarrassing it was to not put something in it? Right. Oh, yes. But for a lot of people, they're sitting there in their homes and they're watching this on YouTube or whatever. And... The little donate button is there, but no one's watching them and no one's judging them for not giving. Right. So that is why donations are on the decline because nobody's watching them. If if it was the Mormon church, then they would know because tithing is a mandatory thing there. And I'm certain that there are churches out there that keep tabs on it too. But it doesn't sound like these people do. It's a no. it's a large congregation. I think that they just thought that this would always just work. Now it really doesn't work nope. the way that they hoped it would in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So that, I think, is most of it. I also wanted to make a little comment here right from the very beginning where he says COVID-19 forced every church in America to rethink how to best serve their parishioners. Every church in America was thinking this. I no, don't think Every so. church in America was thinking about how they were going to stay open and keep exposing people to this deadly virus so that they could keep getting those tithes. Right. That's what it was about. So this church goes virtual and surprise, surprise, donations are down because no one's watching. Right. Not as many people anyway. As Hemant Mehta says... If your church's revenue depends on peer pressure and people giving money primarily because the people next to them are doing so, you're running a scheme, not a decent business. True that. Still, this is a positive move for everyone involved. The church will sell the property and go virtual, the money going to strengthen its online presence and maintaining actual services that they provide, such as the food bank that thousands of families depend on. It's positive for the people who may soon own the land, too. The proposed plan is for a developer to build homes, apartments, and a five-acre public park in that space. It's much, much better use for it than a church. Definitely. Of course there are objectors, the ones clinging to traditions. But if that's all your church has going for it, then it deserves to close down. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Discussing that last week. Yeah. And just happening everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's keep up the momentum. Like I said last week, anytime a church closes its doors, it's good news as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I don't get sentimental over it. I wouldn't get sentimental over it if it was my home church in Poughkeepsie. No. For me, it would be a point of vindication if that place closed down. Yeah. I don't feel bad when a church closes. And I don't feel bad when a church loses money. Right. Because this is where you start seeing people's true colors when they're not being watched. Right. That's it. So what else have you got for us? Well, in Give Them an Inch, They'll Take a Mile news, an Oklahoma law passed in 2010 allowed public school districts to offer high school students an elective course teaching students about the Old Testament, New Testament, or both. Teaching about it, not about teaching it, it. Not teaching it, mm-hmm. but just teaching about it. The newly created section made clear that such a course would abide by religious neutrality rules and not endorse, favor, or promote, or disfavor, or show hostility toward any particular religion or non-religious faith or religious perspective. In English, that meant that this was not church. Teachers could not say the Bible was true. The focus was on the Bible's content and impact on culture. That wiggle room made it hard to go after in court, and several states have similar statutes on the books. 
While there have been difficulties working to create classes like this, now it seems that the state senator, George Burns, has decided that the 2010 law doesn't go far enough. He wants to amend this law to provide for several things, none of them good. He wants to require an elective Bible course to use only the King James Version of the Bible and also expands the possible teachers for this course to include clergy members who have no background in education. And it would also require any school offering this course to have a copy of the King James Version Bible in its library. Basically, Burns wants to create a pathway for Christian fundamentalism specifically to make its way into public schools. Of course he does. Of course and he can does. can we savor the irony, just a moment, of a guy named George Burns yeah. being at the, uh, at the helm of this? Yeah. There is no reason to make these changes. They don't make their classes better or their teachers more knowledgeable. It's also the logical conclusion of having this kind of Bible as an elective type of class at all. Whenever they're proposed, church-state separation advocates are quick to warn about how the classes are part of a larger right-wing plan to inject religion into the school system. And this is precisely how it starts. Oh, yeah. But, you know, to be fair, my high school also offered an English elective called The Bible is Literature. So this isn't new. No, it's not But there was no one back then who was trying to make it a seminary course. Right. No, No, no one was trying to do that. And we actually did have, on the English department staff, we had a Catholic deacon. And Mm. he was not the teacher for that. No. It was placed in the hands of someone who would treat it as basically secular literature. Right. And so, you know, I I opted not to take it because at the time, of course, little evangelical teenager, I found it offensive that you would look at the Bible as anything but the all authoritative word of God. Mm. So, of course, I didn't take that elective. No. But it was deliciously secular in the way (laughs) that it was presented. But, yeah, this is... You know, you, you open the door just to crack, and yep. these people are there to try and kick it in, aren't they? Yep. Give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Absolutely. Also worth noting is that Burns is a member of Lucfada Baptist Church, which says very clearly on its website that the King James Version of the Bible shall be the official and only translation used by this church. Burns isn't proposing his bill because it would be good for the students. He's doing it because it'd be good for his church. Well, yeah, and it's standard MO for the Baptists to only stand behind the KJV. This was the thing when I was at Word of Life, it was like it was the only version that any of them used. Right. And when I showed up with my Good News Catholic Study Bible, Mm -hmm. I was immediately told that I needed to get either a Thompson Chain Reference Bible or a Ryrie Study Bible. I was 13. Yeah, right? 13. (laughs) But they didn't like my Good News Bible because it wasn't KJV. Nope. I had the Good News Bible, too, when I was in Episcopal Church. Yeah. That's the one they gave out yeah, to the kids. And, yeah, and any church of that particular ilk is going to kind of gravitate toward the Good News. Yeah. But, you know, the Bible is not good literature for children of any age. It's not good literature, period. No. I personally feel that it should be an elective in college because it has a lot of cultural touchstones. But, no, not for any type of spiritual significance. Definitely in college, not high school. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why you would need it in college either. No. But I can certainly see, you know, some kind of filler English language arts kind of survey class that they could make out of it. And, you know, people would take it. 
Sure. People people would waste the money on it, I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, where's the relevance? Where's the yeah. cultural Honestly, relevance of something like if that? If you're going to make that culturally relevant, you should make all of them culturally relevant, especially in America, because we have people of all faiths living here. Mm-hmm. So they're Americans too. Why not have all of them? So if you want to take comparative religious literature, you can do that. <laughs> well, comparative religious literature, I can almost see the value in that. Right. But focusing in on just this one book yeah. and this one version of this book. Yeah, that's yeah, just no. that, that makes That makes absolutely no sense if you were talking about it from the standpoint of a secular high school course. No. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oh, this next one is absolutely priceless. Mm, some priceless marriage advice from somebody who has no clue. And by priceless, we mean it's shit at any price. Yes, yes. Pastor Stuart Allen Clark of First General Baptist Church in Malden, Missouri, told his congregation recently that divorce should be avoided at all costs, including if you're unhappy in your marriage. He described divorce as part of a Babylonian scheme to break down the family. I'm not sure. Babylonian scheme. I'm like, I don't know where the Babylonians are in our government, so whatever. Yeah, me Um, neither. (laughs) He goes on to say, now I know what the Bible says, but I hear people saying, well, he, she doesn't make me happy and I deserve to be happy. I tell you what, you know what I did before I got married? I read my vows because I wanted to know what I was getting into. And here's what they said. I, Stuart Allen, take you, Melinda, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. I don't see anything there about being happy. Well, it's kind of implied. I it mean, is kind of implied. Yeah. Why get married in the first place if it's not at least well, okay, never mind. We're talking about evangelicals. Yeah. So we know why they got married. Yeah. Now that's okay, say okay, a spider just step back just a little bit. That's not a 100% hard and fast rule. No. But I know what my motivation was, and I know what the motivation was for a lot of the people that we yeah. went to school with. Oh, yeah. People meeting in September and getting married in December. Oh, please. You yeah. know what the motivation is there. Of course. They'll say something else, but Mhm. I'd like to take a little moment to say happy Valentine's Day to Pastor Stewart's wife, Melinda. Good luck. Such a romantic you have there. Oh, definitely. Seriously. He's a keeper. Hmm. There's no reward for staying in an unhappy marriage. You can just ask kids whose parents should have divorced. Some people should get divorced so everyone, including the children, can be happier. Amen to that. This is just bad advice. Very, very bad advice. But it's the same advice that they're going to get if they go to Christian marriage counseling, too. Yeah. They're going to be counseled to stay together at all costs. Right. Whether they're happy or unhappy or if someone's being abused or whatever, they're going to tell you to stay married. There's no evangelical pastor, Christian counselor, or organization out there that is going to advocate that you get divorced. No. And that's not the only bad advice this guy has given. In March of this past year, he said that keeping a marriage strong required the wife to look hot. Oh, it's this guy. It's this guy. Oh, my God. Okay. The example he gave is, like Melania Trump, lose some weight, submit to his every sexual whim. If you don't, it's going to be your fault that he strays. Yeah, it's always her fault. Yeah. It's always her fault when the guy strays. Come on now. 
I mean, it, I, it's it's been the same old song and dance from the very beginning. Well, yeah. Uh, I, it's not my fault, God. It's this woman you gave me. She gave me the apple. I ate it, and here we are. Uh-huh. It's been the same old story ever yeah. since the Garden of Eden. Yeah. He said, everyone can't be trophy wives, but you should at least look like a participation trophy wife. Oh, dear God. Can't you just hear the crowd chuckling? Can't you just hear the crowd hurling? I <laughs> it mean, should be hurling. Jesus. I'm... Just the sheer unadulterated misogyny. Yeah, it's terrible. Of those last couple of lines. It's just a train wreck of misogyny. Yeah, I do remember the scandal that erupted around those uh, messages that he gave that were problematic. He stopped preaching for like a few months and went to, quote unquote, counseling. Because that's what they always do. That's what they say yeah, they're that's doing what they with say these they're people. Doing. But it's good to know that nothing really changes any of his opinions. And they're all horrible. Well, I mean, look at where they come from. Ugh. And look at how deep-seated they are. You Seriously. Know? He's not going to have this change of heart and change of mind just because a few people gasped at the things that he said and he pretended to go to counseling. Right. You know, that's it's not going to change him. None of it's going to change him. Even if it were to change what his outward persona looks like a little bit, it's not going to change who he is. No. That cat's out of the bag. We know who you are, buddy. Yeah. So you can try to mea culpa your way out of this, but it's not going to work. It, it just, it's not going to work. And, and as we can see, even after all that, he's still sticking his foot in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this this is just, this is some of the most toxic relationship advice that I've heard come out of this crazy ass thing called evangelicalism in a while. Yeah. And the sad part is it's overall almost innocuous nature when you compare it to some of the other things that they've had to say up on the subject of love, marriage, divorce, all of that. This is very small potatoes and yeah. it's just one nutter's opinion. So, <laughs> yeah. No, no one ever told me I was going to be happy. Well, you know what? Maybe in the purest academic sense of your vows, that's true. You weren't promising to be happy or try to be happy or saying, in return for all of this, you're going to make me happy. But I feel like these things are kind of implied when you decide that you're going to spend your life with someone. It really should be happy. And yeah. if you make that kind of decision and stick with it, I think you deserve to be happy. Yeah. I think that if you're being abused, you don't need to stay. I think that if you fall out of love for any number of reasons, it's not necessary to stay. There are all kinds of ways around these quote unquote vows that we take. We've learned this in our marriage. Yeah. That the vows are open to interpretation and they're open to various applications. (laughs) But at the end of the day... Any changes that have happened in our relationship have happened with the intention that everyone remains happy. Right. So no one told me that I would be happy in my marriage, but why on earth would I have gotten married if I didn't think I could be happy? Really? You know, it amazes me how they'll even derail their own happiness in their effort to be right and in their effort to be in control. It amazes me that they're even willing to derail their own happiness over that. So on that happy note, (laughs) just before we get into our main topic, just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any size donation is going to help us and you will be helping other people get and stay unbound by helping us increase our reach, get this message out to more people and just keep improving on what we are doing. 
I'm burning the candle at both ends and in the middle right now, folks, between starting a new business and continuing to do this week to week. I have no clue. I have no clue how (laughs) I'm preparing these episodes every week, how we're actually sitting down to record every week. I don't know. All I know is that it has to be the drive of undoing some of the damage that I did over time through this religion and helping some people get their lives back. It's a huge motivator for me. You know, sometimes having a good old fashioned savior complex can make things happen. But, you know, like I said, I've been really, really seriously busy and we're still pumping out these episodes every week because I believe that what we're doing here is helping people. And sooner or later, someone is going to stumble upon one of these episodes. Everything's going to click with them. And it's just going to be over for them with Christianity. And that, to me, is the goal. Find me a starfish once in a while that I can throw back into the surf and I'm happy. Any size donation will help and will put every penny to good use. And if you are just too strapped for cash to be able to pay for free content, we understand that. But we also want you to know that there are things that you can do. Support us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all of the things that make podcasts grow. That's what we need from you. This week, tell someone new about the show. Talk about the show on social media. Share out your favorite episodes. And anyone that you know who could benefit from some of the messaging, steer them in our direction because we want to help them. And you can be integral in our efforts to help them without ever spending a penny. So one more time, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you have a few dollars, you can send our way. If not, just help us out in all those ways that we just mentioned, and it will make a difference in people's lives. Now, next week, we are going to be diving into a topic that I thought about long before we ever sat down behind these mics. Azusa Street. I've got a few working titles here. Uh, For those who don't know, Azusa Street is basically, to give you the Reader's Digest version, it's where the Assemblies of God basically began. Right. And I've got a few working titles here for the, for the subtitle of this episode. Azusa Street, the start of a new error. Or Azusa Street, the disassembly of God. Um, Azusa Street, the farce awakens. Or Azusa Street, tongues for the memories. I have no idea where we're going with this. Wow. All I know is that I intend to mock it every bit as much as I just did, but also inform because understanding where all of this comes from right. is vital for understanding why you don't need to be part of it anymore. So, and this is going to be the first of a bunch of topics like this that we cover this year. I'm already thinking about shining the spotlight on some of the splinter factions in Pentecostalism, like okay. Foursquare Gospel, like Pentecostal Holiness and a bunch of others. And we're going to really take some time this year to understand the ins and outs of every facet of this religion and just how batshit crazy it all really is. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to putting in the time to research it and deliver to you what I find out about it. But next week, we're going to start out with Azusa Street because that, at least in my evangelical journey, that's where it pretty much starts. I mean, word of life... That was the first week. Right. And then the Pentecostals got a hold of me pretty damn quick. (laughs) And there are reasons for that. And we're going to get into some of those reasons when we talk about these people and some of their motivations. That's going to be next week. Right now, it's time to dive into our conversation on climate change and give you some of the uh, ammunition that you need to formulate a good counter apologetic, have some good talking points, 
really be able to deliver the point counterpoint when these people start voicing their parroted opinions about this mm. without any knowledge or real actual forethought about it. So without any further ado, let's get right into our main topic. So in 2015, Pew Research asked American adults of varying religious faith traditions their view on climate change. They were divided into four groups, those who believe climate change is caused by human activity, those who believe it's being caused by natural phenomenon, those who believe there's no solid evidence that the earth is getting warmer, and those who aren't sure. Of white evangelicals surveyed, 37% said they believe there's no solid evidence the planet is getting warmer. This is higher than all other religious groups polled. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So since we're talking about solid evidence, let's start out with some. Now, I knew I needed a credible source, or 12, for this one, not just bloggers. So I decided to steer my attention first to the organization that spends the most time observing global climate trends. So here's what a little organization called NASA has to say. They start off by making the statement that most evangelicals pick up and run with before recognizing or caring that this is only the first part of the equation. Here's what they say about global trends and how climate has changed over time. Quote, Earth's climate has changed throughout history. Just in the last 650,000 years, there have been seven cycles of glacial advance and retreat, with the abrupt end of the last ice age about 11,700 years ago, marking the beginning of the modern climate era and of human civilization. Most of these climate changes are attributed to very small variations in Earth's orbit that change the amount of solar energy our planet receives. Now, I think it's worth noting here that not only is NASA a de facto credible source, they even cite their own research in the footnotes of this article. This isn't even one scientific body's opinion. It's something that has widespread agreement along credible academic peer-reviewed lines all over the world. And I can hear the counter-argument from the evangelicals going off in my head right now. Well, just because a bunch of people say that they agree with something doesn't make it true. Well, yeah. And you know what? Evangelicals should take a leaf from that book. And other religious people, too. But to be fair, they're right. It's possible that a large group of people can develop and perpetuate an elaborate ruse on an unsuspecting public. It's happened before. The Council of Nicaea is a prime example. I'm just saying. But when a bunch of people make the same observations and can provide independent data and proofs of their positions, it becomes harder and harder to just dismiss. But that's precisely what climate deniers of every ilk do. They dismiss the data, decide that this is a global conspiracy, and indoctrinate the shit out of anyone who will listen until there's enough forward momentum for the idea to create a firm enough barrier between belief and science. Let's pause for just a minute here and have a look at the most important process in the entire climate change argument, and that would be the scientific method. This applies to literally everything they deny, from young earth theory to creationism to climate change, but the method doesn't vary from one scientific body to another, and if it does, it gets tossed out in peer review. Scientific method is a rigid form of collecting and analyzing data. It leaves very little, if any, room for variables. And when those variables exist, they are all tested and found to be either sound or errant in the overall construction of a scientific theory. 
The system is set up to flatly deny the opportunity for one person or organization to drive thought on a single subject or idea. Here is how scientific method works. The Encyclopedia Britannica describes the scientific method as, quote, mathematical and experimental technique employed in the sciences. More specifically, it is the technique used in the construction and testing of a scientific hypothesis. So what are the steps to this? Well, you start by asking a question. So let's just say the question is, in this context, is global warming an actual thing? So that's the foundation of the study. Once you have the question on the table, you go through a little process called research. Once you have a few things in front of you that you believe to be credible, that's when you form a hypothesis. The basic definition of a hypothesis is, quote, an educated guess. So that means you've taken your research and you have formed a conclusion based on your research that may or may not be correct. So how do you figure out if your hypothesis is correct? Well, you go into the testing and experimenting phase. And there can be any number of things, any number of steps, any number of years devoted to this. And for certain things, there have been for years and decades and even centuries, then we're going to see in a couple of minutes, of testing and experimenting, trying to put the big picture together and come up with an answer to the original question. So once you do all of your testing and experimenting, now comes the part where you analyze the results and come to a conclusion. So once you've decided that you've come up with something that's right, that's your conclusion. And the last part of it is to share your results and see if other scientists or scientific bodies agree or disagree based on their approach to this method. That's the way that it works. And I love how evangelicals like to try and make us believe that there is dissent among the ranks with this, that there's yeah. disagreement. Well, no, there is not. And I'll get into that in just a little while, too. But that's all they've got right. is to try and use the divide and conquer approach because they don't have their own counter argument to this. They couldn't possibly make one. They're not fucking smart enough. It's right. just that simple. But when these steps do yield measurable, observable results, what often emerges is a new scientific theory. And evangelicals don't like that word either. They don't like evolution because evolution is, quote unquote, just a theory. Well, you need to understand what the definition of the word theory is in the context of science versus the context of what you think is going on in the latest Star Wars trilogy, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a big difference, but it goes even further. Before a new theory is adopted, reputable scientists will then apply every possible variable to the equation for the express purpose of disproving their findings. They put all this work and effort into coming up with a workable hypothesis, and then they work tirelessly to disprove it. That's the way science works. Whether you realize it or not, that's what's going on when people are quote unquote doing science. They're coming up with conclusions and then testing the ever loving shit out of them, trying to disprove them. That's part of the process. Yes, people work for years proving hypotheses only to have other smart people roll up behind them and vigorously attempt to prove them wrong. And it's not a matter of self-doubt. It's not a matter of they're not sure of what they've discovered here. It's a matter of the only way to make sure is to try and break it. Right. 
And that's the whole point. Even the person or group asserting the hypothesis goes through an exhaustive process of trying to prove it wrong before ever even making an assertion that it's right. This isn't a game or a competition. It's a necessary part of the process. So yes, there have been and continue to be groups of people out there who look at every facet of things like climate change, whose goal and purpose is to find chinks in the armor or report that there are none. And scientists the world over agree on at least the foundational arguments for climate change. Let me say that again. Scientists the world over agree on at least the foundational arguments for climate change. So to put it in perspective, when a scientific body comes out and says climate change is real, they present their argument like this. And this is, again, very oversimplified, but this is the general gist. We notice that there have been changes in global climate. These changes don't jibe with any natural process that we have been able to observe by way of things like geology or meteorology. We've checked. Our exhaustive research shows that human activity is the cause of this acceleration in climate change. We have worked tirelessly to come up with other causes, and nothing we've observed points to anything else. We can observe the world is getting warmer. We can observe the effects of this rapid warming trend. And there are specific things that are causing it, and it's humans who are doing all of them. Now, when an evangelical launches his or her counter-argument, it usually begins and ends with, well, Genesis 9-11 says that the world won't be destroyed in a flood again, so back off. The smart ones, the quote-unquote smart ones, will then pull out the first foundational statement that NASA presents and form their entire argument around that, not even considering all the data that the foundation supports or confirms. The NASA article continues with this, quote, the current warming trend is of particular significance because it is unequivocally the result of human activity since the mid-20th century and proceeding at a rate that is unprecedented over millennia. 40 years versus millennia, okay? It is undeniable that human activities have warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land, and that widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere have occurred. They then go on to explain how they collected the data. One of the biggest tools they have is satellite technology. We are able to literally look at the planet and see what's going on, and we have decades of data to observe and learn from at this point. Science has also been aware since at least the mid-19th century of how global warming happens. And here's what NASA provides in their footnotes. In 1824, Joseph Fourier calculated that an Earth-sized planet at our distance from the sun ought to be much colder. He suggested something in the atmosphere must be acting like an insulating blanket. In 1856, Eunice Foote discovered that blanket, showing that carbon dioxide and water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere trap escaping infrared radiation. In the 1860s, physicist John Tyndall recognized Earth's natural greenhouse effect and suggested that slight changes in the atmospheric composition could bring about climatic variations. In 1896, a seminal paper by Swedish scientist Svante Arrhenius first predicted that changes in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels could substantially alter the surface temperature through the greenhouse effect. We've had this term since 1896. And we learned all of this. We learned 
all of this before we had cars and refrigerators, and the average white evangelical still has the audacity to cry Genesis 9-11 over the mountain of research that has come after. In 1938, Guy Callender connected carbon dioxide increases in Earth's atmosphere to global warming. In 1941, Milutin Milankovic linked ice ages to Earth's orbital characteristics. Gilbert Plass formulated the carbon dioxide theory of climate change in 1956. And over time, there have been other observations. Some have been made to directly prove that climate change is real, while others emerged as elements of other research. We know that the Earth's climate responds to changes in greenhouse gas levels by way of ice cores drawn from sources in Antarctica and Greenland. We can look back in time and find evidences of climate change in things like tree rings, coral reefs, ocean sediments, and sedimentary rock formations. By looking at how the planet functioned in the distant past, scientists have been able to determine that the planet's current warming trends are roughly 10 times that of the normal recovery warming trends that follow a typical ice age. It's the fault of carbon emissions, and that is something that we have direct control over. We are doing this. The reason why warming trends were different during the last ice age is because we weren't here. Right. We weren't here. And that's why the natural cycle of things is being disrupted, because we are doing things to disrupt it, period. And let's not forget that the average evangelical looks at the planet as expendable in the first place. Before we manage to kill it, God is going to destroy it and make a new one for us anyway. At that point, why does global warming even matter? Why do we need to take care of this planet? We're getting a new one. But here's the thing. The reason why it matters is because bad things are happening and they're happening right now and they're happening faster than many people realize. And well, Jesus remains AWOL. After 2,000 years, where the fuck is he? And where's my new earth? Hmm. Bottom line is this is all we've got. And we're basically making it go away. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you think about their attitude toward the planet. The 80s was supposed to be the last decade. Yeah. You know, Jesus, the choice of the last generation. Ugh. How many times were we told that we wouldn't make it through the 80s? And then as soon as I got to college in 89, it was we're not going to make it through the 90s. Right. So they just keep resetting like they always do. Let's not forget that. And here are just some of the evidences that NASA has observed recently. Let's not even think about, you know, the, the people who came before and did all this research in the 19th century. Here's what's been happening in the last 40 years. We have seen rising global temperatures. The planet's average surface temperature has risen about 1.18 degrees Celsius since scientists began observing warming trends in the 1800s. Most of that increase has occurred in the past 40 years. The last seven years have been the warmest, and 2016 and 2020 are tied for the warmest year on record. Many scientific bodies, as well as the UN, have put a cap of a 1.5 degree Celsius rise before truly catastrophic consequences emerge. And I'm reading this and thinking, well, fuck, they haven't already? Yeah. I mean, we'll get into that in just a minute, too. But to put it in perspective, we are a scant 0.32 degrees Celsius away from that threshold 
right now. And shit is happening yeah. right now. And just to put a point on all of this, where we live in Massachusetts didn't see tornado activity in over 70 years, according to local meteorologists, until June of 2011. And we had a doozy that just rocked this entire area yeah. that year. I was giving driving lessons that day. Wow. So I remember it well. And here's the thing. There have been at least 30 tornadoes slash microburst events that have happened since then. So 70 years of nothing, and now you're looking at 10 years of these kinds of events starting to happen all the time in an area where they just didn't before. And just to give you a little bit of an insider look at this, because we lived through it. This was our community. I gave driving lessons after, too, and saw a lot of the aftermath of this. Yeah. But this is what happened in our area on June 1st, 2011. A total of six tornadoes touched down in both western Massachusetts and western Maine. The most violent was a long-track, high-end EF3 tornado that caused significant damage to the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, as well as several adjacent cities and towns. West Springfield got it. Oh, yeah. We actually, do you remember when we looked at a house on one specific street in West Springfield? Oh, yeah. The other side of that street yeah. was obliterated by the tornado. It came Crazy. right through that neighborhood. Yeah. And we were so upset that we didn't get that house. Yeah. You know, and it tore through pretty much every place that I was working. Went through uh, Wilbraham, went through Munson, and it stopped in Newton. I didn't even realize that it made it that far. Yeah. But it really did just... it carved a path of destruction that was like it, it looks like a demilitarized zone driving through some of these areas it really did look like a demilitarized zone for quite a while by the end of the day three people had been killed and at least 200 were injured and greater than 500 families were left homeless in an area that didn't see anything like this for seven decades and now sees it all the time yeah and just on the heels of that the next thing that uh, that NASA cites is extreme weather events. There are clear links between record high temperatures, drought, extreme precipitation, hurricanes, tornadoes, and wildfires, and climate change. You know, fire season wasn't something I grew up with. It's not something that I remember hearing about. I mean, there were there have always been forest fires. Yeah. But maybe I'm just not being observant enough. But I don't think that we've gone through every summer with hazy, smoky-smelling no. skies on the East Coast that are the result of fires on the West Coast. I don't think that we grew up with that. No. And just so that we're clear, you know, going through the uh, the Bible Belt and other areas in the American South, there's been drought that's been going on now for about 12 years. And serious drought, especially in the American South from Southern California all the way down into Texas, there's been problems with drought for well over a decade now. And then there's the whole aspect of warming oceans. The first 100 meters of the world's oceans have warmed 0.33 degrees Celsius since 1969. The ocean has absorbed a huge amount of the increased heat from global warming. That's okay news for humans, but terrible news for lots of forms of marine life, particularly coral and numerous species of ocean vegetation. Then there's shrinking ice sheets. What were we talking about with satellites? All you have to do is fucking look. Yeah. 
The Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets are decreasing in mass. Data from NASA's Gravity Recovery and Climate experiments show Greenland lost an average of 279 billion tons of ice between 1993 and 2019, while Antarctica lost about 148 billion tons of ice per year during that same time. Glacial retreat. This is what happens when a glacier's terminus does not extend as far down valley as it previously did. Glaciers may retreat when their ice melts or abates more quickly than snowfall can accumulate and form new glacial ice. This is happening all over the world. The Andes, the Alps, the Himalayas, closer to home, the Rockies, and glaciers in Alaska and Africa are all observed to be affected. Then there's the decrease in snow cover. You know, when we were kids, yeah. we got a lot more snow. Yeah, and I remember did. you talking to me about Pittsfield winters yeah. and how crazy they were. And you know what? The first couple of years that we were dating, I saw what you yeah. were talking about. It's nowhere near no, what it was then it now. Was. It's nowhere near that. So decreased snow cover is another outgrowth of this. Satellite images show the amount of spring snow cover in the Northern Hemisphere decreasing over the past five decades. Snow is also melting earlier than it used to. This is bad news for areas whose water supplies depend on runoff from melting snow and snowpack. Rising sea levels. Guess what? Sea levels have risen about eight inches in the past century. Think about what eight inches of water looks like and what it can do to change the shape and landscape of an entire continent yeah. and what it can do in terms of plate tectonics. There are so many things. And eight inches of water is a lot. Eight inches over a decade is a lot. But here's the thing. The last two decades have seen the sharpest increase at about double the rate of the past century. The seas rise slightly every single year, and it is happening faster now. Then there's the decrease in Arctic sea ice. The thickness and extent of Arctic sea ice has been decreasing significantly over the past several decades as well. Ocean acidity has been increasing since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Surface water acidity in the oceans has increased in that time by nearly 30%. So those are the things that NASA has been able to observe about this. They haven't formed opinions on it. They've observed it. And it all goes into the hypothesis that global warming is a real thing. And all of it points to two things. Number one, it totally is. And number two, we are doing it. So why do evangelicals deny climate change? Well, they deny climate change for the same reasons that they deny pretty much anything else that they don't like, mm. because they've convinced themselves that their God disagrees. And they'll also scapegoat their God in various um, arguments that they yeah. make about this. Like, they will tell you flat out that God just won't let it happen, that God is going to take care of everything, and we don't have to worry about a thing because God made this promise a long time ago that he wouldn't destroy the world with a flood. So we don't have to worry about the polar ice caps melting or any of this other stuff because he's already told us that this is not something that we need to worry about. And then we're getting a new heaven and a new earth. 
And yeah, it's a real argument that they use. It's like, we don't really need to worry too much about what's going on with this planet. And even if we're wrong and the whole thing goes to shit, it doesn't matter. If it kills us all, it doesn't matter. We've got something better waiting on the other side. There's that idiotic argument again. White evangelicals in particular love to play the end times card with this too. And they say, these things that are happening, we can point to various places in Revelation that corroborate that they're supposed to happen. So it's not up to us to stop it. It's up to us to recognize what's happening and see it for what it is. That's their take on it. Then there's the notion that God has charged people to, quote, subdue the earth. So that means that we should be able to do whatever we want with it, to bend it to the will of what we want to accomplish. But here's the thing. How do you subdue the earth by creating situations that breed tornadoes and hurricanes? Where's the notion of subduing the earth in that? Right on the heels of that, I had in my notes climate change denial as part of their politics. So, you know, if the orange idiot says that climate change isn't a thing and pulls us out of the uh, Paris Accord, then it must not be a big deal because why would the annoying orange lie to us? Um, I kind of brought this up a minute ago too, but a lot of times they deny it because they're products of Christian education. And this is what they've been taught from the time they can understand. And it's never occurred to them to question it. Then they've been encouraged not to. They've been encouraged not to listen to anyone in the scientific community or anyone that's on the other side of the political fence. They're told not to listen to any of this, that this is the truth. You need to just accept it. And that's that. And when you tell a child this, that's precisely what they do. And it carries over into adulthood. Another byproduct of that is that the average evangelical has never and will never require proof of anything. Mm. They just need to be told that something is true by someone that they trust. Yeah. And that's it. They're never going to take it any further than that. Their pastor says it. Their pastor wouldn't lie to them. Their president says it. Their president wouldn't lie to them. Anyone that they trust is the authority and anyone who represents any kind of scientific body is by definition the enemy. Right. And you know what? Let's be fair. This is not an evangelical thing. The Catholics started it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. They've been suppressing science from their very beginning because they understand that if we get too smart, then we won't believe in their religion anymore. So they suppress, 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 suppress. And them being the great grandparents of our little thing called evangelicalism, it all just sort of spills over. So it started when Christianity became a thing. It started then. So it's not all the evangelicals, but they sure should have adopted it. And they are doing everything in their power to push us further and further toward that 1.5 threshold. Then there's the other aspect of this, too, is that when they do seek evidence, they latch onto the wrong details or they adopt the, the last opinion they heard from the pulpit or from their favorite politician. It's never this study says it's always this person says. And that is very typical and very standard in evangelical thinking. Last little thing that I brainstormed on this list is that it hasn't touched their lives in a significant way, or they've convinced themselves that God is behind things like decades-long drought and massive hurricanes because it all has a purpose. A lot of these affected areas are in the deep south. So yeah, when, when you move a little bit further north, And it's negative nine degrees at 12 noon. It's easy 
for people who think like this to scoff and say, yeah, so much for global warming. We're going to get into that in just a second. As a matter of fact, it's the very next thing in my notes. So let's take a look at that concept. And I'm going to approach this next set of ideas from the standpoint of countering popular arguments. So I'm going to tell you what they say, and I'm going to tell you what the elevator pitch answer is to all these things that they say about global warming. So I just teased the first one. It sure is cold this winter, so much for climate change. Well, here's what the evangelicals and other people who think this really need to understand here. There is a difference between climate and weather. These two things are not the same. Climate is something that is measured over time. Weather is something that is measured hour by hour. Right. Okay. So you can have global warming and a day that's negative nine degrees Fahrenheit. And sometimes those drastic changes in temperature, high or low, can be traced back to the effects of global warming. Although most of the research indicates that we've had a lot of record highs and very, very few record lows yeah. in the last decade in particular and in the last four years in particular. We've had a lot more record highs than record lows, and that trend is going to continue. And the other part of this is that the North sees a lot less of an effect in terms of the severity yeah. of global warming. We don't really see the extensive droughts, the proliferation of pest-destroying crops, the massive floods yeah. that they see down south. We don't really get that to the extent up here. We get all of it up here, but yeah. we don't get it to the extent. There are much, much bigger problems in the south. The next argument is that climate change is natural. The earth goes through warming and cooling phases naturally. Well, NASA will tell you that. But when you compare the fluctuations and the amounts of time involved with a purely natural cycle between ice ages and those that involve human influences, the differences that emerge are obvious. Well, scientists disagree when it comes to climate change. Like hell they do. Like hell they do. Show me a source that isn't your pastor on that one. And when your pastor hits you with it, demand that he cite his sources. Yeah. Then there's the whole notion, uh, Dr. Malcolm again, life can adapt. But not when the changes happen this fast, it can't. Entire ecosystems are being thrust into chaos, and the species that make them up absolutely cannot develop natural solutions to an unnatural problem like human-driven climate change. And one of the things that the NASA article cites here is frogs. One of the first species to die off in an yeah. ecosystem is frogs because of the vulnerabilities that exist in the way that they procreate right. and in the way that they function in the environment. So in a lot of instances, when you see ecosystems that have lots of different varieties of frogs and those frogs disappear, that is a direct result of global warming. And it's also the canary in the coal mine that that entire ecosystem is about to unravel and collapse. Life can adapt, but not when it's acted upon unnaturally. And then there's the argument that it's already too late. Well, here's the thing. It's true that damage has been done, but we can control whether or not we keep inching ever closer to that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold or take steps to slow things down. The Paris Climate Accord is all about this, and despite what some idiot like 45 would like to tell you, it matters even if you aren't from Paris. Hmm. 
But, you know, here's the thing. Even though 45 pulled that stunt, most states still maintained the same standards that would have been laid out in the uh, right. in the Paris Climate Agreement. So leaving this particular organization didn't really change much in terms of how we did things, but it sure as hell gave license to a lot of industries to start scaling back on the climate-friendly policies and procedures that they had in place. So for the most part, states stepped in and said, yeah, well, you know what? You're not going to be allowed to do that here anyway. Regardless of what this guy has to say, we are still going to do things this way. That was the case in most places. Not all, but most. I do like that we have that association again. I think that it's important that we have that association again. So real short and sweet tonight. And, you know, that's good for me with all that's going on. In this house, in our lives right now, short and sweet is good. I'm glad that everybody enjoyed Saved. I'm glad that everyone enjoyed that episode. It took off like a bullet. And, you know, that just tells me that that kind of content kind of jibes with the people that listen to this show. So thanks for uh, for coming back every week and, uh, and giving us your support and for giving us such good feedback just with your downloads as to what you like. But I kind of knew that this wasn't going to be a long, drawn-out thing because most of our listeners understand that global warming is a thing. So I don't feel like it's my job to persuade on this. I feel like it's my job to help you understand how to have a conversation with somebody about it. So hopefully some of the information that I've shared with you tonight is going to help you with that. And all of the stuff that I'm talking about is all in the show notes, almost word for word in some places. And all of the sources are there, so you've got some good ammo to work with. For now, I just want to leave you with a few parting thoughts on this subject that you can take with you and also use in conversations about this particular subject. Remember, please, that you are never going to convince someone who is hopelessly drunk on the Kool-Aid of anything reasonable, logical, or true. The point here is not to convince. The point is to simply convey. Keep the truth in front of your evangelical friends and keep it in the forefront of your mind if you're coming out of this. Because evangelicals are really into the concept of sowing seeds. And, you know, in this instance, I think that it works in our favor. You can play their game their way. Keep the information in front of them. Sow seeds of wisdom into minds that turned rocky to any secular concept years ago. Debate, but do not argue. Arguing only affirms their resolve to stick to their errant beliefs and narrow views. And I also don't think that I have to go into a big uh, persuasive dissertation on why climate change is real, rehashing facts and figures and going over ground we've already covered and that has been common knowledge for decades and, you know, centuries if you really want to look way back. I think most people listening understand that this is a thing and that we need to start being better humans if we don't want to lose our home. But to the former evangelical or to the ones sitting alone in their car, surreptitiously listening to us as you drive to church for what I can only hope will be one of the last times, I want to make a couple appeals to you. Clearly what you're hearing is making sense or you wouldn't have listened this far. Clearly you have at least a surface desire to seek the truth even down a few uncomfortable avenues and I commend you for that. Your own book says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm not taking the verse out of context. I'm merely suggesting that it applies in more than one. If this is a subject that worries you, and it should be, there are things you can do about it. First, stop getting your information from politicians, preachers, and propagandists. 
click on a few of the links above and go searching for more sources as you go. There is a wealth of information out there from credible scientific sources that will answer any and all questions that you have on this subject, and not one of them will ever point a finger in the direction of a deity. Not one. Not one will lend deference to the opinion or will of a deity, and not one will agree even a little with anything you've been taught about this planet and how it functions from sources like Christian Ed science textbooks, freelance YouTube videos, or the Bible. They will, however, show you real numbers. They will show you pictures of what the planet looked like 30 years ago and how it looks now. Billions and billions of years of history, the endurance of this planet through ages and ages of natural changes that it has rolled with for eons, and we are taking it down in a matter of decades. That's not subduing the Earth. That's destroying it, and we need to stop. You can also stop voting for people who think like your pastor. You can stop electing presidents who pull our country out of the Paris Climate Accord and who give industries license to amp up our carbon footprint to dangerous levels so the richest among us can keep making money until there's nowhere left to spend it. You can be involved in the political process and put people in seats of power who have the capability of stopping the forward march into disaster that we are currently on. Now, a quick word to those who might be listening who still think their pastors and favorite politicians know more about this than NASA. When your farm is hit with drought, when pests destroy your crops, when the cost of the things you need to survive goes through the roof, there's a reason for it. There's a reason why we now have fire season. There's a reason why those hurricanes seem to be getting stronger, more violent, and more persistent. And if your God is in control, that means he has control over all of this. When do you start calling your God out on his lies and demand that he make good on his promise to prosper you and not to harm you? Because with all due respect, he's doing a singularly shitty job of that and not just in the case of climate. We all need to approach this subject from the perspective of fact and truth. We need to understand that we have the responsibility to be educated and to do what we can to save this planet from ourselves. You know, I remember Rush Limbaugh citing that quote from the novel Jurassic Park as a young evangelical, and that being the thing that made me wave off the whole global warming thing. But just like most evangelicals, I simply accepted that this was the entire message. The link to that segment in the book is in the show notes. Read that line in context, and you learn instantly that if we keep trying to kill our planet, eventually it'll kill us back. It will survive our folly, but we will not. Understanding that is just another thing that we need to steer our way away from the harms of religious thinking and toward real solutions to the crisis in which we're in. Because it's not just about freeing ourselves from the toxicity that comes with evangelical thinking this time. Our planet, our home, the only place in this universe we have to sustain us needs our help if it is to have any chance of getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get hyphen unbound. 
www.ghostbusters.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.